The scripture reading for today comes from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, and then 21, 22 through 22, 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated. And uh, good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, we are wrapping up our sermon series on lament today, and we'll be looking at the hope of lament. You know, after descending down into the deep, dark valley by looking at the cause of lament, human sin, and then bottoming out by looking at the pain of lament, the prayer of hopelessness from Psalm 88, we began to ascend back up by looking at the prayer of lament, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then today we will finally be reaching the mountaintop, so to speak, the hope of lament. What is our hope in the midst of our lament? What is our hope when we are in pain? What is our hope when we are crying out to God in prayer? And to answer these questions and more, we'll be looking at the last two chapters of the entire Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, these chapters are the Apostle John's vision of the end of history, uh, his vision of our future, our future hope. And so we're going to look more closely at Revelation 21 and 22, and as we do so, we'll have three points. Uh, all things new. That's the first point. Second point will be the heavenly city, and the final point will be the tree of life. So let's begin with our first point, all things new. 
Is there anything uh, in our lives that is a better example of a blessing and a curse than online package tracking? I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's pretty convenient uh, to get up-to-date progress on a delivery and to know when to be on the lookout for a package on your front door. That's the blessing. But the curse, uh, online, package trackaging, online package tracking makes us absolutely insane. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I have something being shipped to me that I can track, I lose all sense of priorities. You know, my wife might be like, oh, the baby is crying, can you get her? And I'll be like, just a second, my package just arrived at a sorting facility in Louisville, Kentucky, and I need to see what will happen next. Maybe you can relate. Uh, Because we love new things. We love looking for new things online. We love ordering new things. We love receiving new things. And that's what online package tracking tells us, when we will be receiving something new. And as, you know, as silly as it sounds, knowing that something new is on its way can sometimes be just what you need to get through a lousy day. You know, knowing that you will receive something new can give you a hope of sorts. Well, our passage in Revelation tells us about some new things that are on their way. In the first five verses of our passage, the word new appears four times. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all things new. Sounds pretty good, right? It is. It's a lot better than whatever package you're waiting for this week. You know, John is having a vision of the end of history, the end times, the eschaton, and what he sees is all things new. Now, it's important that we understand what is precisely meant by the word new in this passage and in other, passage, other passages of Scripture that relate to it. Because when we first hear the word new, we might be tempted to think, you know, out with the old, in with the new. Uh, Annihilation and replacement. Uh, And that's because when we get something new, it often coincides with getting rid of something old. You know, if, if you buy a new car, maybe that means that you sold your old car to someone else. You don't have it anymore. Or if your phone stops working, you might throw it away, recycle it, and uh, replace it with a new phone. You know, annihilation and replacement. But that's a very consumeristic and materialistic understanding of newness. Uh, In Scripture, new does not mean a replacement. Uh, It doesn't mean new in terms of time or origin. It means new in terms of quality. It means a radical cleansing so that the object described as new is like new. It's renewed. New doesn't mean annihilation and replacement. In Scripture, there's always both continuity and discontinuity between old things and new things. Like when Jesus resurrects, for example, he has a glorified body and can do kind of crazy things like travel through locked doors. And so there's definitely discontinuity there. But remember the scene with doubting Thomas? Jesus still has holes in his hands. And so there's continuity too. Jesus' new glorified body demonstrated both discontinuity and continuity with his old body. Or here's another example. 1 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
very similar language to our Revelation passage. It's a pretty well-known verse, and it says that anyone who's in Christ, any Christian, anyone who has saving faith, is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, right? Do you believe that? Do you know that? You're new. You're a new creation. But when you became a Christian, when you became a new creation, did God annihilate you and replace you? No. It's still you. There's both continuity and discontinuity between the old you and the new you. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same you, but it's renewed, redeemed, restored you. It's you becoming who you were meant to be. It's you, but with a new orientation, new priorities, new direction, new power. So same thing with the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all things new being described in Revelation. This isn't describing annihilation and replacement. It's describing renewal, restoration, redemption of all things, all things becoming as they were meant to be. And so there will be both discontinuity and continuity between heaven and earth now and the new heaven and the new earth in the future. And that's important to understand. I mean, for one, if, if salvation were a plan of replacement, then you would have to be replaced. You would have to be annihilated and replaced, right? But salvation is not a plan of replacement. It's a plan of renewal, a plan of redemption, a plan of restoration. You're going to be renewed, redeemed, and restored. But it's also important to understand because I think there can be this mistaken view, uh, kind of fatalistic view, that says this world won't last. God's going to destroy it one day and make a new one. Therefore, it doesn't really matter how we treat the world or the creation or anything in it. It doesn't really matter how we live right now. It's all going to be replaced one day anyway. But that's not what Scripture teaches. God isn't going to replace creation. He's going to redeem creation. Or, you know, you might think... Who cares if I die of COVID? I'm going to get a new body one day anyway. Well, God cares if you die of COVID. He made that body. He made you. He knows the number of hairs on the top of your head. And your new glorified body won't be a replacement body. It's your body now redeemed, renewed, restored. And so treat it as such. Treat your body as importantly as God treats your body. Scripture teaches that the creation is good. It's very good. God loves his creation. He didn't abandon it when it fell. Instead, he instituted a plan of redemption for creation. And though creation groans right now, it's ultimately headed toward renewal, all things new. So what does all things new actually look like? We don't know every specific answer to that question, Uh, But we do know who is making all things new, God. And so we can trust him to do a good job making all things new. But even so, even with what we don't know, uh, he has told us some things. And this is where maybe some of the hope in the midst of our lament comes in. Uh, Chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, describe the church, God's people, being adorned like a bride on her wedding day and marrying her husband, Jesus, God himself. And from then on, God will dwell with his people, just like a bride and groom depart their wedding and dwell with one another. Now, 
listen to what our passage says God is going to do for his bride, for his people, for you. Listen to what all things new will be like from verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So there's kind of two separate things happening right here. There's both a wiping away of our tears, as well as the elimination of all things that bring tears. So our tears will be wiped away, and then all the things that make people cry will be done away with. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what tears will we be bringing into the new heaven and new earth? You know, what tears will you be bringing to the new heaven and the new earth? What, what pain, what crying, what mourning have you experienced in this life? That, you know, no matter how hard you try, you never seem to be able to leave behind the, the pain that kind of sticks with you. It becomes a part of you. It, it still brings tears to your eyes now when you think about it. What tears will you be bringing into the new heaven and the new earth? What tears will Jesus be wiping away from your eyes in that day? Because he will wipe them. Do you believe that? Jesus will wipe away your tears. I can't tell you exactly how that works. But the picture is clear. Just like Jesus resurrects and still has holes in his hands, we resurrect at the end of the age and still have tears in our eyes. But then we enter the new heaven and the new earth and Jesus wipes them away. Our laments are taken away. Our wounds are bound up and healed. Our, our sadness comes untrue somehow. And Jesus comforts us. He is the God of all comfort, after all. But he doesn't just comfort us. He also eliminates all the things that made us cry in the first place. He eliminates all the things that lead to lament. No more crying because there's no more pain. It's been eliminated. No more mourning because there's no more death. Death has been defeated. All things new. And that's, that's the newness that you're truly after, right? No, no Amazon package is going to give you that. No new job is going to give you that. Moving to a new city isn't going to give you that. All things new. All the new things in this life that we set our hopes on don't even come close they're, they're false hopes, and, and deep inside of us, what we're actually after is the all things new of heaven, of the new heaven, the new earth. The, the new things in this life don't wipe away our tears. They don't eliminate crying and mourning. They don't defeat death. They don't get rid of pain. They're false hopes. But the all things new with Jesus is our true hope, the all things new of the new heaven and the new earth, that's actually something you can place your hope in because it actually comes from Jesus. But that's really, you know, just the start. That's just the entry point. Day one in heaven, your tears are wiped away. But what about day two and the rest of your days in heaven? What happens next? Well, it takes us to our second point, the heavenly city. Have you ever lived in a city or spent time in a city, maybe on vacation. What do you think of living in the city? Do you like it? Do you dislike it? What makes living in a city different than living anywhere else? You know, I've spent my fair share of years living in a city. I lived for a year in Montenegro's capital city, Podgorica. I lived in St. Louis for three and a half years during seminary. 
uh, before moving to the Bay Area, uh, my wife and I lived in the city of Seattle, not too far from downtown. You know, what makes living in a city different than living anywhere else? I think the, the most basic difference is that there are more people in a city. And of course, more people has both upsides and downsides. Uh, more people can mean less parking. Uh, more people can mean more crime. More people can mean it's more expensive to live there. But more people can also mean uh, that there's more available to do nearby. You know, in all three of the cities I lived in, I could walk to get my groceries. Uh, in in Podgorica, I didn't even, ha- didn't even have a car. In uh, Seattle, Holly and I were able to share just one car. Uh, there are advantages sometimes of living around more people. There's upsides and downsides. Uh, one more implication that Tim Keller uh, advocates for is that in the city, there's more of the image of God per square inch than anywhere else in the world. Our passage in Revelation describes the end times as taking place in a city. Revelation 21.2 says the people of God are a city themselves, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is, of course, the capital city of Israel. And then Revelation 21.22-27 describes what the city is like. And the point is clear. Heaven is a city. After we die and resurrect and enter the new heaven and new earth, we will be living in a heavenly city. It's not a suburb. It's not a small town. It's not a national park. It's not the wilderness. It's not a village. It's a city. And it's not even a garden, which is interesting. You know, the very good creation all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 started in a garden, the Garden of Eden. But the new creation at the end of history isn't exactly a return to a garden. The new creation is a city. And you could call it a garden city, but it's not just a garden like Eden was. It's also a city. And so what is the heavenly city like? If we look through uh, the verses 22 through 27, we can see some of the descriptions of the heavenly city. So first and, and most important from verse 22, John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, why is John looking for a temple in the first place? Well, it's because the temple was the dwelling place of God, and John wants to know where exactly God dwells in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, after all, throughout redemptive history, the dwelling place of God has moved from one place to another. It used to be the Garden of Eden. In fact, the later tabernacle and temple were designed in ways that referenced the Garden of Eden. You know, for example, there were menorahs in the temple. You know, the shape of a menorah is kind of like a tree, trunk, branches, and that symbolized the tree of life, which was in the garden. And so you can almost say that the garden itself was a temple. That's where God dwelled. But then humanity was cast out of the garden, and God did not dwell with them anymore. And so in Exodus, God uh, has the people build a new dwelling place for him to dwell among them, the tabernacle. And it's like a, a tent, it's mobile, so that God's most holy presence could move with them as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. And then later, once they were established as a nation in the promised land, uh, Israel built a temple, an actual building, a permanent house for God to dwell among his people. Except that it ends up not being so permanent. 
because Israel becomes more and more wicked, uh, God eventually has foreign nations defeat them, carry them off into exile, and the temple's destroyed. And they do eventually build another temple, but God's holy presence doesn't fill that one. He doesn't dwell there. But then Jesus comes. John 1.14 says that the word, which is Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt could be translated tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so now the fullness of God dwells on earth through the man, Jesus Christ. But then he eventually is crucified, he resurrects, and then he ascends up to heaven. And so what does he do? He sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within his people. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit unites all Christians to one another and to Christ so that we essentially are all like living stones being built up into a spiritual temple that's all over the world. And so we can see a few things here about the dwelling place of God. The, the dwelling place of God has been uh, always somewhat confined. It's this structure only or these people only. But there's also been a progression to the dwelling place of God. Do you kind of see what I mean? It, it has always been progressing towards something more permanent and towards something more widespread. From a tent to a temple to God incarnate walking among us to the Holy Spirit within God's people. And then finally, in heaven, in Revelation, John is looking for the dwelling place of God. Where is the dwelling place of God confined? John's looking for a temple, and he doesn't see one anywhere. Do you know why? It's because God's dwelling place isn't confined anymore. It's everywhere. The whole heavenly city is the dwelling place of God. The, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple now, and they live in the city with their people. It's as permanent and as widespread as it can get. Essentially, you don't have to drive to church in heaven. Everywhere will be church, so to speak. There's no temple in the city because God dwells everywhere with his people. And his glory is everywhere, which is why verse 23 says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. God's glory is the light, and so there's no need for additional lighting. Because God is everywhere and his light shines everywhere, there's also no need to shut the city gates. Verse 25 says, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And the point is this, you know, gates are for keeping enemies outside the walls and keeping the people inside the walls safe from harm. But in the heavenly city, all of our enemies have been defeated. And so the city doesn't need to close its gates. The city is safe. You know, you might associate cities now with crime and danger, but not the heavenly city. It's safe. And then verse 27 says that nothing unclean ever enters the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have been sanctified and glorified by Jesus are in the city. And so it's safe from within and from without. Then one last point about the city. It's multi-ethnic. Verses 24 and 26 say, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The, the nations and the kings of those nations who are in the book of life will be in the heavenly city, and it says that they will bring their glory and honor into it. 
You know, all nations, all people groups, all cultures have cultural gifts as well as cultural sins. But in heaven, the nations and uh, the cultures will be purified. You know, cultural sins will be left behind, but the best and most reflective parts of the image of God from each culture will be ushered into the city. The glory and the honor of the nations will make up the heavenly city. You know, what would normally divide us here on earth, what divides people who live in the same city now, will be what unites us in the heavenly city. So in the heavenly city, God dwells everywhere. His glory is on full display. God's people are safe, and God's people are multi-ethnic. But that's the future, and it's often a vastly different experience than what we experience now. And so does the heavenly city really matter that much for us today? Yes, because you are a citizen of that heavenly city. That's the city that you are headed toward. And so the heavenly city gives us hope now, even as we lament all the ways that our cities and places of living aren't like the heavenly city. You know, right now, God's dwelling place isn't everywhere on earth. I'm sure between worship services and other church gatherings, you're well aware of just how absent God's rule and reign are. The world does not set aside time or space for God to dwell. It's only when his people gather and dwell by the Holy Spirit that the stones of the temple are put together. But, you know, during this pandemic and the recent Omicron spike, even that has felt thwarted at times. And so we lament But it won't always be that way. Everywhere will be the temple in heaven, and so we have hope in that. This world also isn't a place of safety. We do have to close our gates at night, literally and metaphorically. Thieves break in and steal. There's murder, there's abuse, there's injustice. There's also ethnic strife. You know, nations and people don't share and receive cultural glory with one another. They, they go to war instead. They oppress one another. They oppress those within their own boundaries. You know, Russia prepares to invade Ukraine. China puts Uyghurs in mass detention camps. The U.S. aborts 800,000 babies a year. And so we lament. But it won't always be that way. In the heavenly city, there are no invasions. There are no detention camps. The unborn are resurrected. We lament now, but we hope in the future heavenly city. But we also do more than hope. We have a role to play between now and then. You know, the trajectory of redemptive history is from a garden to a city. And Jesus instructs us to pray in the meantime for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And you're not just supposed to pray and do nothing. You're supposed to pray and contribute to it. You know, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not fully here, but it's not not here at all. It's at hand. It's already, but it's also coming. It's also what will be. And you and I live in this kind of ambiguous middle of it. We have a role to play right now. So you have to ask yourself, how might God intend for you to play a role in building his kingdom here on earth as it will be in heaven? You know, how are you building God's dwelling place? You know, we're, we're doing it right now, actually. We're gathered. This moment right now, this morning together, is heaven on earth. When you're here, you both make it happen and experience it happening. When you're not here, 
you both miss out and diminish it slightly for those who are gathered. When you lean in and participate and commit yourself to church life, you build God's dwelling place here on earth because God dwells among his people. He dwells in and among you. Or what about your, your work, your vocation? How does your work make this world a little bit more like heaven? How does your work make life safer for others? How does your work promote human flourishing? How does it give other people rest? How does it provide hospitality? How does it heal? How does it preserve life? How does it protect the vulnerable? How does it lift up the oppressed? How does your work make this world a little bit more like heaven? You know, if you're, if you're struggling to answer that question, let me know and let's talk. I'm actually pretty passionate about helping people connect their faith and their work. Most of you probably don't need new jobs. You need a new perspective on your job. Maybe you need to think about it less individualistically, more corporately. Maybe you need to think about it less materialistically. You know, your work is about more than just making money. It's about bringing something from the heavenly city to earth now. So what are you longing for in the heavenly city today? How are you building God's kingdom on earth now as it is in heaven? Okay, at the end of history, God is making all things new and will dwell with him in the heavenly city. Let's move on now to our final point, the tree of life. In the uh, final part of our passage, John is shown a few more things. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 2 say, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. John sees the tree of life, which takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. You remember the tree of life in Genesis? In Genesis 2.9, we read that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are two trees highlighted in Genesis 2, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil tends to get a lot of attention, but it's actually the tree of life that's in the new creation. And so what's the big deal about the tree of life? Well, the tree of life was closely associated with God's life-giving power. You know, right before God planted the tree of life, Genesis described the creation of Adam. And it says that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And then so this tree perpetuates life's, or God's life-giving power. You know, if you eat the fruit of the tree, you'll be transformed. You'll live forever, eternal life. And so the picture is this. Adam and Eve are in this temple garden. And, you know, based on how the later temple building was structured, God's tree of life was most likely at the top of the garden, maybe top of a hill, top of a mountain, so that you could see it from everywhere. But there was another tree in the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating from it represents taking upon yourself the authority to do whatever seems right in your own eyes. And, of course, when people do what seems good in their own eyes as opposed to what's good in God's eyes, bad things happen. That's what the book of Judges is all about. And what's more, if you eat from the second tree, you will die. Eat from the tree of life and you'll have eternal life. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
and you will die. And so God tells Adam and Eve that they can eat from the tree of life. They can eat from any tree in the garden, but they should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God banishes them from the garden. And actually at the end of Genesis 3, it specifically says that God is banishing them from the tree of life. They won't get to eat from the fruit of the tree of life anymore. Skip ahead in the Bible to the next book, Exodus. And we have a new main character before God, Moses. And how does Moses first meet God? Through a burning bush on top of a mountain. Or you could say, through a tree of life. The bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed by the flames. Instead, it's consumed with God's presence, with God's life-giving power. And God tells Moses to bring his people up on that mountain with him so that they can make a covenant with God and he can be their God. They'll be his people. God, the source of life, is pursuing the descendants of Adam and Eve who rejected him as the source of life. And the people come and they make a covenant and everything is smooth sailing after. Not really. Very shortly after, the people make an idol, the golden calf. Remember that story? And they worship this idol. They worship the golden calf. And this is just the first of many more times after where the people of God will give in to the constant temptation to worship idols, to fashion idols, to build shrines to idols, to put these shrines on top of hills, high places, and worship them instead of worshiping the true God. So clearly this isn't working. So fast forward again, Jesus comes, and he says all these interesting things. Whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, that's what the fruit of the tree of life gave, right? Eternal life. Or Jesus also says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You get the picture? Jesus is the tree of life, and he wants you to eat his fruit. If you trust him, if you eat the fruit of his tree, so to speak, you'll be transformed and have eternal life. But just like Adam and Eve chose not to believe God in the garden, so did many people in Jesus' day choose not to believe him. And what did they do? They killed him. They chopped down the tree of life. And so Jesus was up on top of another hill where he died upon a tree, the cross. And it became another symbol of humanity's desire to do what was right in their own eyes instead of what was right in God's eyes, a shrine to their idolatry. But that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus had actually spoken of this happening before he died. John 12, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, a seed, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. And so like a seed planted in the ground that grows into a tree that bears much fruit, Jesus died, went into the ground, only to later emerge to resurrect as a new tree of life, a tree that we can eat from. And as we do, we follow Jesus through death, allowing our old way of being human to die so that a new creation can grow in its place so that we can be transformed and have eternal life. And not just us, but others Two, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so you yourself can eat from the tree and be transformed to have eternal life. And once you do, you actually become a part of the tree, united to Christ, a branch on the tree of life so that you can bear Christ's fruit that brings transformation and healing and eternal life to others. 
This tree started growing through Jesus' resurrection. It's never going to stop growing. It's never going to be chopped down. And in the new creation, the tree will stand prominently, bearing fruit, so that all who have eaten from it will be healed, healed from their wounds, healed from their iniquities, perfectly righteous before God and Jesus. Revelation 22, 3-5 says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. That's where we're headed. And look, I I don't know exactly what laments have come up for each of you during the past month. Uh, I do know that life is full of reasons to lament. There are laments for yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But in the midst of our laments, Jesus has not left us without hope. He knows you need a future to look forward to. And even though we may not know every last detail about the future, the end times, the new creation, we know enough. Every tear wiped away, all things new, a heavenly city, a river, and tree of life. And if you haven't spent much time imagining what heaven will be like, I I encourage you to do so. Read these chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, and picture heaven. Pray for your heart to be aligned with God's heart. And then begin to imagine what heaven will be like. What tears are going to be wiped away? What's going to be made new? What's the heavenly city going to be like? What job are you going to have in heaven? What did the tree of life heal for you? You know, use your imagination. It's actually totally safe to use your imagination because heaven's going to be better than you imagine. You won't be let down by imagining what heaven is like. God is able to do far more than you could think or imagine. When life is overwhelming, when you're overwhelmed by your anxieties or your sorrows or pain or whatever, Jesus has words for you that he repeats twice at the end of Revelation 22, just after our passage. Jesus says twice, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. And so how do we respond to Jesus' words? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you have not left us in our laments. You have not left us without hope, but you have given us a future. You've given us hope. We pray, Lord, that we would trust you with our tears. We would trust you with making all things new. We would trust you with our healing. Father, we pray that We would embrace more and more our citizenship in the heavenly city today. That we would be working to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Empower us. And we pray all these things, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.